You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online. I'm Will Gregerson, Community Services Librarian at Warwick Public Library in Warwick, Rhode Island. Welcome to the American Civil War, a four-part lecture series by Dr. Stanley Carpenter, Professor Emeritus of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Dr. Carpenter is Naval War College Command Historian, a United States Naval officer, active and reserve, retired as captain, 1979 to 2009, a widely published expert on British military and naval history, and the author of three World War II spy novels. Included with the lectures are slides. Click on the links in the show notes to open the slides and move to the next image when Dr. Carpenter says slide. This is part four, War is Hell. I am Professor Stan Carpenter, Professor Emeritus from the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And in this final lecture, I'm gonna be discussing the American Civil War, 1864 to 1865, War is Hell. Slide. Well, as we get into 1864, what is the state of the Army of the Potomac? This is the major military instrument uh, in the uh, United States at the start of the 1864 campaign season. Now, there are other armies, uh, United States armies around, uh, particularly in the South. There's the uh, forces under uh, William Tecumseh Sherman that are now operating in Tennessee and Georgia. Uh, there's uh, in Louisiana, but the major striking force is still that Army of the Potomac based out of Northern Virginia and Washington. And by this time, 1864, it's composed of five corps of roughly 20,000 men each. Four of them are infantry, and one is cavalry under Major General Phil Sheridan. So about 119,000 troops with 316 guns. They also had established by this time a very robust supply system based on the railroads, and the U.S. Navy had complete control of the seas and the rivers. And also, in terms of operating in Virginia, the control of the Lower James River gave a logistical support to forces that are eventually, by the summer of 1864, going to be begin the uh, uh, great siege of Richmond and Petersburg. So that's essentially the status of the Army of the Potomac as we get into 1864. Slide. So in March of 1864, President uh, Grant was summoned from the Western Theater, uh, sorry, General Grant, by President Lincoln. He was promoted to Lieutenant General and appointed General-in-Chief of all the Union forces. Uh, In the Western Theater, where Grant had commanded, uh, Sherman took uh, command. Uh, Lincoln and Grant then devised a coordinated strategy to attack the Confederacy at multiple points. So how would this work? Well, Grant and the Army of the Potomac would uh, target Richmond and Petersburg in Virginia. General Franz Siegel would come into the Shenandoah Valley, which by this time was the logistical heartland, if you will, supplying most of the food for the uh, uh, forces in Virginia. So that certainly was a target. Sherman, now in well in control of Tennessee and particularly the rail junction at uh, Chattanooga, Uh, would invade Georgia aimed at Atlanta, which was uh, also a major rail and supply hub. And then in uh, Alabama, uh, Nathaniel Banks and Admiral Farragut would go against Mobile, Alabama, 
and capture that and move inland uh, from the uh, deep south. So that's sort of the strategic situation, at least from the northern side, by the spring of uh, 1864. Slide. Well, what about the Confederates and Robert E. Lee, who is commander the Army of Northern Virginia? One fallacy or myth, if you will, that a lot of people uh, believe is that Lee commanded all of the Confederate forces. That is incorrect. There were a number of Confederate armies still operating. There was Kirby Smith uh, out in Trans-Mississippi. Uh, for example, there was Joseph Johnston in the Army of Tennessee. That's eventually going to work its way from Tennessee into North Carolina. And then there's the Army of Northern Virginia, which is the main strike force. Uh, that is what Robert E. Lee commands, but he does not command all of the Confederate forces. Well, the Army of Northern Virginia was severely depleted by the campaigns of 1863. At the beginning of the year, the Army was down to about 64,000 men with 274 guns. It was also organized into corps. There were four corps of roughly 15,000 men each, commanded by uh, Lone Street, Jubal Early, and A.P. Hill. And Jeb Stewart, J.E.B. Stewart, commanded the Cavalry Corps. So you can see that the, uh, that the Army uh, of the Potomac outnumbered Lee's Army of Northern Virginia by a factor of four or five to one. So you can see the strategic conundrum facing Lee as he tries to keep the uh, federal troops out of Richmond. Slide. So what does Grant do? Well, this was the Overland Campaign. It was aimed at the destruction of Lee's army. It was initiated in May and carried on through June of 1864. The capture of Richmond, the Confederate capital, was actually the secondary objective. The actual ob objective was to uh, destroy the fighting ability of the army in Northern Virginia. So. How do you do this? Well, you force Lee to defend Richmond, and in doing that, you attrite the Army of Northern Virginia until it simply becomes an ineffective force. Grant ordered Meade, who uh, is actually in command of the Army of Potomac. Remember now, Grant is the overall commander-in-chief uh, of uh, Union forces. Grant ordered Meade to, quote, wherever Lee goes, there you will go also, end quote. So Grant prepared a war of offensive attrition, leading to an annihilation strategic effect. Now, understand that an annihilation strategy, it doesn't mean you kill every one of the enemy. What it means is you annihilate his ability or capability or will to continue the fight. And you can do this by offensive attrition, which is uh, exactly what Grant intends to do. Slide. So on to Richmond. Grant's Overland Campaign of May, June 64. Uh, Grant planned on, quote, hammer continuously against the armed forces of the enemy and his resources until by mere attrition, if in no other way, there should be nothing left to him but an equal submission with the loyal section of our common country to the Constitution and laws of the land, end quote. So uh, you can see uh, the Overland Campaign map there in the slide, but the plan was basically to continuously outflank or attempt to outflank Lee on the eastern side of that line that ran roughly from, uh, uh, from the Rapidan River all the way down to Richmond and Petersburg. The railroads were always subject to destruction by quick raids. Uh, so if you could maintain your own waterborne logistics support coming up from the Hampton Roads area, 
rather than the railroads, and then you could destroy the uh, railroads by quick raids. That really undercut Lee's ability to uh, keep his force uh, fed and, and uh, supplied. So this overland campaign is going to lead to a series of very large battles and small skirmishes. The major battles would have been the Wilderness, 5 to 7 May, Spotsylvania Courthouse, 8 to 21 May, Yellow Tavern, 11 May, and Cold Harbor, 31 May to 12 June. So this is the time frame that we're dealing with. The Army of the Potomac thus crossed the Rapidan River in northern Virginia on the 4th of May, 1864. And this action set in motion the last great campaign of the Civil War and ultimately re resulted in the destruction of the Army of Northern Virginia and the collapse of the Confederacy. Slide. Well, here we have George Gordon Meade, commander of the Army of Potomac. Uh, we've met him before. Uh, he was appointed as CO, uh, commanding officer of the Army of, of the Potomac on 28 June. 1863, just in time to fight Lee to a draw at Gettysburg. Lincoln now had his man for command of the Army of the Potomac, and uh, Meade is going to remain in command of that army, even though uh, General-in-Chief Grant chose to maintain overall headquarters with the army. Uh, normally, the General-in-Chief would have stayed in Washington, uh, but Grant chose to actually go out with the army in command from the field. Meade was not flashy but he was extremely competent as both a field commander and as an administrator. So Meade combined those two qualities that had been missing in previous commanding officers of the Army of the Potomac, folks like McDowell and Hooker and Burnside and McClellan, etc. Slide. Well, the first big battle of this overland campaign was the Wilderness, 5 to 7 May, 1864. Grant's strategic objective initially was to force Lee out of his defensive fortifications uh, or turn the, the uh, Confederate flank to provoke a general engagement. Uh, this essentially was what uh, the, the War of Attrition was all about. Force Lee to fight and every time he fought he lost more irreplaceable casualties. But Lee moved quickly as he typically was wont to do and he caught the Union forces still moving through this area called the Wilderness. Uh, this was an area of scrub brush and tangled undergrowth in an area just around the, the tiny hamlet of Chancellorsville. And it was called the wilderness because all the old growth woods had been cut down to fuel the ironworks, blast furnaces that existed in the area. So uh, with those trees cut down, the replacement trees hadn't grown up yet. So it was a lot of scrub, a lot of saplings, a lot of uh, tangled undergrowth. And that terrain really nullified the Union artillery advantage. It's very difficult to operate uh, artillery effectively in that type of uh, terrain. So Grant um, had a numerical and artillery advantage, but Lee knew he had to fight him in the wilderness. And so that's why Robert E. Lee was willing to engage in uh, early May 64. Slide. Well, if you are wanting to go on the offensive and attack, you look for opportunities, and Lee saw one. The Union logistical tail, which is that series of supply wagons and carts and whatever, it actually trailed back 70 miles uh, behind the uh, advancing Army of the Potomac. 4,300 wagons, 835 ambulances, even a herd of cattle. So that supply train, vulnerable, moving down those roads, uh, provided an opportunity for Lee to uh, react and attack. Now, 
Grant calculated that Meade could move the army south of the wilderness quickly enough to uh, avoid Lee and thus draw him out into the open territory, out of the wilderness. Uh, Meade, however, recommended setting up a camp for that first night to allow the supply wagons to catch up. And unfortunately uh, for the north, as has happened to the south at Gettysburg, uh, the cavalry was unable to recon and warn of Lee's rapid movements. And so uh, this is going to precipitate the Battle of the Wilderness really before the Army of the Potomac was actually ready to fight. So what happened? Slide. The Wilderness Campaign or the Wilderness Battle. So Lee ordered Ewell's Corps to advance up the Orange Turnpike Road and A.P. Hill on the Orange Plank Road. And you can see from the map here, uh, coming from the two different directions, going from southwest to northwest. And if they, in fact, executed that maneuver correctly, you can see that they would slam right into the flank of, uh, of Warren's Fifth Corps uh, and possibly Sedgwick's Seventh Corps, who were heading down uh, the Brock Road. So uh, that's basically going to become the first firefight. Now, once advised of the Confederates' presence, here were Grant's orders. Quote, if any opportunity presents itself of pitching into a part of Lee's army, do so without giving time for disposition, end quote. And you can see in this order that Grant uh, is at his best in terms of being offensive-minded, of risk-taking, uh, very bold and very aggressive. Now, what Yule did was he very quickly erected earthworks uh, while Warren awaited the arrival of Sedgwick's uh, uh, corps coming down uh, behind him in the road. Uh, Meade, though, ordered an attack right away in accordance with Grant's orders. Slide. So here's what happened. The uh, battle erupted in what was known as Saunders Field. Uh, Governor Warren ordered the artillery into the fray. Uh, he was captured, actually, by the Confederates in, in pretty brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat. But the problem was uh, they couldn't move the guns. Normally, when you capture an enemy's artillery, you try to turn it around and use it on them. Uh, but because of the, uh, the rifle fire from the Union side, Confederates were unable to take advantage of having captured the uh, Union artillery. So back and forth, all afternoon of 5 May, these attacks and counterattacks through this scrub and brush. And of course, if you cut down large trees, you're going to lop off limbs, and all that is going to become tender. It's going to become dry and subject to fire. And here you have cannons going off with flame. You have uh, uh, rifles and muskets going off, all sorts of flame. You know what's going to happen. The field caught fire. And many of the uh, wounded that were immobile, they were wounded in, on the ground and couldn't move, were just simply killed, not by their wounds, but by the fire that engulfed these fields of scrub and, and uh, uh, parts of branches, etc. So it was a pretty brutal firefight, but no one side could actually make uh, much progress. Cedric's Corps arrived around 3 in the afternoon and commenced their attack. So by this time, uh, it was pretty obvious nothing much was going to occur. Uh, at least in terms of advancing. So both sides pulled back into breastworks after about an hour. Well, then Hill's Corps arrived on the scene, as well as Hancock's Corps. So by four in the afternoon, you pretty much see uh, the bulk of the armies all pulled together there in this wilderness. And the battle then began to sway back and forth until dark, really with no advantage to either side. Just a lot of casualties. 
slide. So now the second day of the wilderness, the 6th of May. Early, early in the morning, about 445, uh, Ewell's Corps uh, attacked, made little progress. Uh, Grant had hoped to pin down Ewell while the main target uh, would still be Hill's Corps. But by this time, Burnside's Corps arrived. Now, Burnside's interesting. Remember when we last uh, saw him, he captured uh, Knoxville, Tennessee in the uh, fall of 63 uh, as the uh, commander of the uh, Ohio. Well, now, because of that, he's back in good graces, and he's brought back into the Army of the Potomac uh, to command a corps. By about 5 in the morning, uh, Hancock uh, attacks Hill's Corps, uh, and uh, Hill's Corps is pretty much overwhelmed. A problem for the Confederates is that Longstreet's Corps is slow in arriving. They had been coming up by a night march and had lost their way at times moving across country in darkness. Uh, but just as Hill's Corps is beginning to collapse, Gregg's Texas Brigade arrives along with Lee and Longstreet. Now, a great story here. Lee began to move forward with the troops, and a bunch of Texans surrounded his horse grabbed the reins, and refused to advance until Lee moved himself safely to the rear. Um, Longstreet assured Lee that everything was well in hand, and uh, Lee then went back to the rear, um, and the Texans moved ahead. But the Texans were not going to allow their, their beloved commanding officer to, to be put into uh, danger. Slide. Well, what about Longstreet? We've seen him before. You know he played a central role in the battles of 1863 and is going to again in 64. Uh, he um, was wounded actually in the neck by, uh, of all things, friendly fire uh, at the wilderness on this uh, May day. And he uh, was out of action recovering until October. So that was uh, James Longstreet slide. Well, back to the wilderness. Now you see there the battle map. Uh, forces are pretty well tightly packed in there uh, in the wilderness, slugging it out with each other. Uh, by early morning, the rest of Longstreet's Corps had moved into the Confederate line, and Longstreet counterattacked. He drove back the Union um, and shored up the Confederate line. The Texas Brigade, remember them, they lost 250 of 800 men engaged. Uh, but the Union assault was blunted and pushed back slide. So now we're getting into the late morning of 6 May. So about 10 o'clock, Longstreet's chief engineer, remember now they've, they've stabilized the line and it's uh, some firing going on, but, but we're awaiting the next big event. Longstreet's chief engineer reported an unfinished railway bed that could be used to uh, come around and attack the uh, Union left, and you can actually see it uh, in the map there. It says Unfinished Railroad. And you can see how if you followed along that, you could actually, undetected, get around uh, the left flank of the Union Army. So at 11, four Confederate brigades used that uh, uh, railway line to come around unseen and attack Hancock's left flank while Longstreet maintained some offensive attacks to, to tie them down. Uh, the Confederates drove Hancock's Corps back to the Brock Road, which is the road they had used to come down. Hancock later remarked that the attack, quote, rolled up his line like a wet blanket, period. Well, the assault eventually lost momentum uh, once Longstreet was wounded, and again by friendly fire, and was out of action. Uh, 
It was thought that a Union mounted unit opened fire uh, and wounded him in the neck, but we know now that it actually was a friendly fire, which uh, unfortunately always happens in wartime. So Hancock's troops were able to reform behind uh, breastworks previously constructed along the Brock Road, and essentially the uh, Confederate attack is going to, to peter out. Slide. Well, what about this fellow, Winfield Scott Hancock? We had seen him earlier at Gettysburg. Here's what uh, historian Glenn Tagg said uh, of Hancock. Quote, no other Union general at Gettysburg dominated men by the sheer force of their presence more completely than Hancock. End quote. And historian Glenn Tucker said of Hancock, quote, his tactical skill had won him the quick admiration of adversaries who had come to know him as the thunderbolt of the Army of the Potomac, end quote. So Hancock was illustrative of that cadre of talented officers that rose to the top of the Union forces by uh, 1863, when most of the uh, political generals, the, uh, the appointees, if you will, uh, simply because they had raised large numbers of troops or were prominent politicians, most of them had been washed out uh, forced to retire or sent off to places where they couldn't do any damage. So by 1863, certainly 64, very talented officers had finally risen to the senior ranks uh, in the Union forces, and I think Winfield Scott Hancock certainly was uh, uh, in the top tier of that, as was Sherman, Sheridan, and Grant. Slide. So back to the wilderness. Well, the fighting uh, around the Orange Courthouse Turnpike continued all day, uh, inconclusive. Uh, Brigadier General John Bell Gordon, uh, who is going to rise to great prominence by this time, proposed an attack on the right. Uh, Early said no. And finally, though, relented and allowed Gordon to lead three brigades uh, after dark or shortly before dark, around and they attacked some fairly new New York regiments that had been manning the DC artillery defenses. What Grant had done is said, well, there's no real threat to the Capitol. So he took a lot of those units that had been doing garrison duty there, and in this case, some inexperienced New York regiments, and pressed them into the infantry and marched them south. Well, they didn't fare too well against uh, Gordon's highly experienced uh, uh, Confederate soldiers. Uh, what saved them, though, was darkness, the dense foliage, uh, reinforcements were able to move in and secure the, the, uh, the line. So the day ended with, really, with many casualties, but no conclusive or decisive victory for either side. So maybe tactically it was a draw, but strategically it was a huge win for Grant and the North. Uh, even though he didn't technically win the battle, it was a tie, a draw, but he was accomplishing his overall strategic objective of attriting the Confederate forces. Because remember, every man that Lee lost was by this time pretty much irreplaceable. So what about the casualties? 17,000 Union casualties, 10,000 Confederate casualties, um, but Grant was on the way to winning the War of Attrition. And just from my own personal family history, uh, my great-great-uncle, William Henry Carpenter, 28th North Carolina Infantry, uh, was wounded for the third time in action at the Wilderness, uh, was taken to a military hospital in Richmond, and died 10 days later of dysentery. Uh, this was not uncommon. Uh, more soldiers died from disease and illness 
than, than any battlefield casualties. And a lot of uh, uh, those that died of things like pneumonia and dysentery or, or infection or sepsis, it was because they had been wounded in combat, wounds that they would recover from if they were soldiers wounded today, but with the state of medicine uh, in 1860s, um, they really had no chance. So uh, my great-great-uncle died of dysentery, having been wounded in combat three times, captured in exchange twice. Um, sort of an interesting story, but it's pretty typical of, of uh, the experience of Civil War soldiers. Slide. Well, there again is Grant. Um, he opted to chase Lee. Lee pulled out of the line and headed back down towards Richmond. So Grant opted to chase Lee to Spotsylvania Courthouse, which was 10 miles southeast, uh, in order to try to get between Lee and Richmond. Now here's where you see a huge difference between Grant in 1864 and previous commanders in 1863 and 2, where they either lost a battle, like at Chancellorsville or Fredericksburg or Bull Run, and they pulled back, they retreated, or it was just simply a draw. Well, not with Grant. He simply pulled his troops down the line, down the road, we're marching to Richmond. We're going to fight Bobby Lee wherever he pops up. That's the huge difference. And that actually was the war-winning strategy. So he ordered a night march on 7 May to reach the courthouse by early morning. But Lee, being very fleet, as he always was, moved quicker. And he managed to reach Spotsylvania Courthouse area ahead of Grant, and that precipitated the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Uh, and a whole series of battles that occurred in the next few days. Cold Harbor is a big one. And many smaller engagements as Grant continually sought to march south and outflank Lee. But Lee kept moving faster and blocking Grant's attempts to outflank him and get between the Army Northern Virginia and Richmond. So it devolved into a series of, of leapfrogs towards Richmond that ended up with the Union Army on the eastern side of Richmond and Petersburg, basically along the James River area. And that's where you ended the Overland Campaign by the end of June of 1864. Slide. I mentioned Phil Sheridan, Philip Sheridan, Little Phil they called him. Uh, he argued for the opportunity to confront Stuart, and Grant replied, quote, well, he generally knows what he's talking about. Let him start right out and do it, and uh, end quote. And General Meade gave his permission, so Sheridan led 10,000 cavalry, uh, threatening the outskirts of Richmond, and on 8 May, he reached, reached the James River. Now, Sheridan saw cavalry as an independent raiding force. Uh, he was never really happy using his uh, troopers to do reconnaissance and screening. He saw it as an independent strike force, an independent raiding force. And so he would precipitate a cavalry action whenever he could. And this occurred at the Battle of Yellow Tavern, just north of Richmond, on the 11th of May. Uh, this was the engagement at which uh, Jeb Stewart was, uh, was actually killed. So Sheridan finally returned to the Army on the 24th of May. Now what this meant for the Union Army is they were really without cavalry resources during that critical battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. And that uh, is probably one of the reasons um, why uh, the Spotsylvania Courthouse was again basically a draw because the North really didn't have a good sense of, of where Lee was and what he was doing without the cavalry. Slide. 
Well, by June, Grant realized that additional frontal assaults were costly and not really causing the Army of Northern Virginia to collapse. So he devised a three-part operation to break the stalemate, to break the stalemate. Yes, he was winning the War of Attrition, uh, but the Army of Northern Virginia had not yet broken. So he devised a plan to do this. First, to interdict Lee's uh, supply lines in the Shenandoah Valley and force him to rein, uh, reinforce there. Secondly, he sent Sheridan with the cavalry to destroy a railroad at Charlottesville. And third, um, he withdrew from Lee's front stealthily and crossed to the south side of the James River to threaten Richmond by taking the rail junction at Petersburg. And this action is going to precipitate that very, very long, months-long siege of Petersburg um, that went all the way into the uh, early spring of 1865. It also precipitated Jubal Early's Valley Campaign of the summer of 1864, uh, big battles there at Cedar Creek and Newmarket. Uh, and, and this was a reaction to Sheridan uh, with the cavalry uh, going up to try to destroy Charlottesville and also the action in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, so this is Jubal Early's Valley Campaign. I, I won't get into the specifics of that. Uh, it, it's easily uh, found and, and is a good read. Uh, but a couple of big battles uh, that summer of 1864 in the Shenandoah uh, as the Union tried to interdict Lee's supply lines in the Shenandoah Valley um, and the uh, uh, Confederates under Jubal Early fought to keep them open. Well, what about crossing the James River? Well, Union engineers constructed a 2,200-foot-long pontoon bridge across the James River in just seven hours, one of the most amazing feats of military engineering in the history of the world. And there you actually see a picture of it. In seven hours to span 2,200 feet across a wide, deep river. So most of the infantry then was able to cross either in boats, but the artillery, the wagons, the horses, etc. were crossed over on this uh, pontoon bridge. And this, of course, sets in motion the Siege of Petersburg, which began on the 15th of June, 1864. Slide. So now we go to this great last act of the war, and that is the Siege of Petersburg and Richmond. Uh, went all through the rest of the summer, the fall, and the winter of 1864 to 65. Now, Petersburg, which is about 25 miles south of Richmond, that uh, was a major rail hub and a supply center for Richmond. In fact, five railroad lines crossed at Petersburg. You had the Appomattox River, which if you look at the map, you can see it flows right in through Petersburg. Uh, that gave water transport uh, from western Virginia. So that was also a, a very important critical supply line. The capture of Petersburg would make defending Richmond pretty much impossible. And so Grant changed the strategy from one of offensive annihilation to one of offensive attrition. In other words, besiege the forces defending Richmond and Petersburg and attrite them down by offensives uh, until they could no longer hold the line. Uh, it also meant threatening the supply line and forcing Lee to come out of his defenses and fight or basically starve in a siege. And the model, of course, was Vicksburg. This is what was in Grant's mind all the time, is he perhaps could pull another Vicksburg. Here we see the reemergence of P.G.T. Beauregard, who was brought back up to uh, command the Petersburg defenses. Slide. 
So the siege of Petersburg, and there in the picture you see those uh, heavy siege mortars, in this case mounted on a, on a platform. So the Overland Campaign had been a huge strategic success. It had attrited Lee's uh, irreplaceable forces. It, it had forced him into a box. Uh, a siege was the worst situation he could be in, uh, subject to starvation, but it also completely undercut uh, what had been a huge advantage for Lee, and that was his ability to rapidly move forces to where the action was occurring. Well, now he's locked into defensive siege lines where you have to worry about starvation, particularly when you had two cities where the civilian population had to be fed and supplied. In this siege of Petersburg, huge numbers of casualties, 55,000 for the Union, 34,000 for the Confederacy. Uh, it, it was pretty much a bloodbath siege. Slide. Well, here's our old friend Ambrose Burnside again. And uh, remember, he's been brought back. He's been rehabilitated uh, by his uh, taking of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now he's commanding a corps in the Army. And uh, this corps is heavily engaged in the siege of Petersburg. Uh, it was not a classic siege where you're completely surrounded. Uh, if you look at the map on a previous slide, it's basically the eastern half with the northern, north of uh, Richmond, all the way down to Petersburg and then the south of Petersburg. But the rear part of that, there were no Union forces there. So it's, uh, it's kind of an unusual siege, but not at the typical where you're surrounded. Now, the Union constructed a whole series of trenches, in fact, 30 miles of them, uh, on the outskirts of Richmond, all the way going down south to Petersburg. And the siege became a series of assaults and actions designed to cut Lee's supply lines, which were, in fact, finally cut by uh, late March of 1865, which forced Lee to retreat or face starvation and forced him to give up Richmond and Petersburg. But for uh, about nine months, this siege went on. Now, here's where Burnside comes back in. One of the regimental commanding officers in Burnside's 9th Corps suggested a very novel idea to break the defensive lines. Uh, this particular regiment was largely uh, made up of miners, coal miners from Pennsylvania. And in fact, the colonel was a mining engineer. And he proposed to General Burnside to dig a mine shaft underneath the Confederate lines, plant explosive charges underneath a key fortification there, and blow it up in the middle of the Confederate line. Uh, well, this plan had a lot of possibilities, and so it went forward. This is going to create the Battle of the Crater, 30 July 1864, which occurs right outside the, uh, the Petersburg line, or actually within the Petersburg line, just outside of the town. Slide. So the engineers, the coal miners from Pennsylvania, uh, built this shaft that was 511 feet long, um, and uh, they filled uh, with 8,000 pounds of gunpowder underneath the Confederate lines. It was actually 20 feet below the Confederate fortification, so um, the Confederates really couldn't hear the, the digging. Now, originally, a division of black regiments were trained and designated to lead the attack, and the battle plan called for two regiments to rush to either side of the creator, two to rush through the creator, uh, through the crater, uh, crater and up and uh, sees that Jerusalem Plank Road, uh, which would lead directly into, uh, uh, into Petersburg. Well, Meade got cold feet here. He ordered that no black regiments would be in the lead. 
because he feared the political repercussions if the operation failed and, and men were killed needlessly. Uh, there was a concern, obviously, for casualties, but more so because of the uh, sentiments in the North. Uh, you didn't want to be seen as, well, we're just sending these black regiments in as cannon fodder. So Meade proposed and Grant supported. Here's the problem. The replacement units did not understand the plan, had not been properly briefed, and unlike the black regiments that were trained up for this operation, were not trained. And that's going to create a catastrophe for the Union Army. Slide. So here's what happened. At 4.44 in the morning of July 30th, the charges were exploded. It created a crater 170 feet wide by 80 feet deep and uh, uh, sorry, 130 feet by 80 feet and then 30 feet deep. It's estimated it instantly killed somewhere between 300 and 350 Confederate defenders. Now, had the assault troops launched immediately, they probably would have succeeded. But these new regiments that were sent in to lead the assault instead of the black troops that had been already trained, the assault troops were not really sure what to do. They waited 10 minutes before charging, and that gave the Confederates just enough time to react and to fill back in. The second thing these assault troops did, remember that two of these regiments in the uh, initial plan were to go around the side of the crater and two more through the crater up to the road. Well, all of these new regiments moved right down into the crater rather than around it. Um, there were no ladders for exiting the crater. So here was these hundreds of men milling about uh, in this 30-foot deep hole in the ground, basically. Burnside then sent the black regiments into the crater, uh, but what happened was they just simply joined this big melee of, of soldiers milling about and, and unable to move. You can imagine what the casualties were. Grant said, quote, it was the saddest affair I have ever witnessed in the war, end quote. 3.7 or 3,700 Union casualties uh, occurred as a, as a result of the crater. Burnside, once again, relieved of command. Quote, uh, or uh, uh, slide, rather. Well, let me turn now to some naval affairs in 1864 and towards the end of the war. And there you see CSS Alabama, which was the most famous of all the uh, Confederate commerce raiders. She was a screw sloop of war. She was built in 1862 at uh, Birkenhead, England by John Laird Sons and Company, which was uh, one of the largest, most famous of the 19th century British uh, uh, shipbuilders. Uh, the um, agent for the Confederacy, uh, James D. Bullock, who by the way was Teddy Roosevelt's uncle, uh, he was an expert at procuring ships and material for the Confederate Navy in Britain and France, J uh, James Bullock was. So the Alabama was sailed to the Azores where she was armed with uh, six 32-pounder smooth bores and two heavier guns on pivots. She was fast for the time, over 13 knots, went on steam and sail power. A very, very fast-moving ship. Now the crew were mostly British volunteers. Remember I mentioned earlier that many of the uh, uh, crews on not only the blockade runners but the Confederate Navy commerce ships, commerce raider ships, were either uh, Royal Navy veterans or merchant seamen, uh, veteran merchant seamen, or like many of the officers, still serving Royal Navy personnel who were taking extended leave. 
uh, to serve in the Confederate Navy. So the first military action of the Alabama was January of 1863, where she sank USS Hatteras near Galveston, Texas. Uh, she took uh, many, many prizes off the coast of Brazil and the South Atlantic. Then she actually operated in the Indian Ocean before returning to Europe. Interestingly enough, the CSS Alabama never actually sailed into a Confederate port in her entire career. Slide. Well, here is Raphael Sims. Uh, he served in the U.S. Navy from 1826 to 60. He actually commanded CSS Sumter uh, and then had uh, a successful career uh, as a commerce raider in the Caribbean and Atlantic. Unfortunately for the Sumter, she was blockaded in the Azores by the U.S. Navy. Uh, Sem sold the ship and then uh, took command of CSS Alabama in the Azores. This was uh, in August of 1862. So when the Alabama was ready, uh, he took command. He was promoted to uh, Rear Admiral in the Confederate Navy and also Brigadier General in the Confederate Army. He was the only person to ever hold that distinction of, of general or flag officer in both the Confederate Navy and the Army. Now, he eventually made his way uh, to Texas via Cuba and on to Richmond, uh, where he commanded the uh, James River Squadron at the end of the war. Uh, so uh, even though his ship, the Alabama, uh, as you're going to see, was sunk in action, uh, he managed to get away, get back, and then command the James River Squadron uh, and after the war, he um, uh, taught philosophy at Louisiana State University and then returned to Mobile, where he was from, Mobile, Alabama, and uh, set up a successful law practice. So that's Raphael Sims, commanding officer of CSS Alabama. Slide. Well, what about the Alabama? Uh, a cruise took her from the Gulf of Mexico to the South Atlantic, uh, to the Indian Ocean and back, and then back to Europe. And she was finally caught off Cherbourg, France, by USS Kearsarge. Uh, the Kearsarge actually had been in Cherbourg for refit and overhaul, heard that the Alabama was out, and came out and confronted uh, Alabama. This was on 11 June 1864. So Kearsarge positioned herself outside of Cherbourg Harbor, um, the Alabama had earlier gotten in and done some refitting. Uh, Sims actually chose to come out and fight rather than be blockaded in. So on the 19th of June, Alabama sortied out. That's a, a Navy term that just basically means you get underway and head out of port, a sortie. Uh, Kearsarge uh, outgunned the Alabama. Um, she had 11-inch Dahlgren guns. Problem with the Alabama is by this time in the war, her powder had pretty well deteriorated and just simply wasn't very reliable. So after an hour of back and forth shooting at each other, the Alabama was pretty much wrecked and sinking, and Sims was forced to strike the colors or surrender. Now, Sims and 41 of the crew were actually rescued by a British yacht and taken back to England. Well, that's how he was able to make his way back to Richmond, command the James River Squadron, and, and return to action. But in her career, the Alabama captured and burned 65 Union ships. Um, the crews were detained and placed aboard neutral ships or at a friendly or a neutral port, and the cargo and ships sold. Uh, the Alabama, in her 534 days at sea, uh, actually boarded 450 different vessels. So this was the most successful of all the Confederate raiders, the CSS Alabama, under 
uh, Admiral Raphael Sims. Slide. Well, back to the Union Navy. We've met him before, Admiral Farragut, the first rear, then the first vice, then the first full admiral in the U.S. Navy. Uh, he's going to capture Mobile uh, in 1864. And this is, once again, clamping down on the Confederate ports. Mobile was hugely important because it was one of only three or four major ports still left of Confederacy. So Admiral Farragut captured Mobile Bay, uh, or Mobile, Alabama, in 1864. Slide. So the Battle of Mobile Bay, 5 August, 1864. There was a small Confederate naval squadron and three forts guarding Mobile Bay, and the entrance was laid with the torpedoes, or think mines. Uh, the monitor USS Tecumseh went straight through the minefield, despite orders to stay well to the east side of the river, hit a mine, blew up, only 21 of 114 crews saved. Well, to a less risk-taking, bold commander than Farragut, this might have put them off a bit, shall we say. But Farragut was like Grant, full steam ahead. So he took the risk that most of the mines were inert, too long in the water, which in point of fact they probably were, and ordered his flagship USS Hartford to charge ahead. And here you have one of the most famous uh, events of the entire Civil War. Once again, as with so many of these things, we don't know for a fact that this ever happened. Uh, but the story goes, uh, we do know that, that he... Uh, went up into the rigging and actually lashed himself to uh, the ratlins, which uh, are those ropes that uh, sailors use to climb up into the rigging. Uh, he lashed himself so that give him some stability, but the idea was so he could get some height of eye and be able to see what was going on, but still called down to his staff down below on the deck uh, what his orders were. Well, we know he did that. But whether or not he said, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, uh, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, I think that that story actually appeared in a newspaper 20 or 30 years later, so uh, who only knows. But point of fact, his actions were damn the torpedoes. He ordered the squadron to just keep on going, sail right on through. Uh, they scattered or sank uh, uh, all the Confederate vessels except the ironclad CSS uh, Tennessee, the flagship of the Confederate squadron. Admiral Franklin Buchanan was on board uh, and basically fought the entire uh, Navy force until it was just simply rendered uh, inoperable and forced to surrender. The forts, uh, they spiked their guns, meaning that you jam something into the touch hole so it can't be fired until it's cleared and evacuated. But this effectively nullified Mobile and and. It actually didn't fall to the Union until the last days of the war, but because the Union controlled Mobile Bay, it was no longer operable as a port or able to be used for a blockade running. So Battle of Mobile Bay, very, very important. Well, what about slide? What about uh, submarines? Interestingly, the CSS Hunley, the first combat submarine to sink a ship. She was built in Mobile uh, in July of 1863, designed by Horace Hunley, hence the name. She was shipped by rail to Charleston, actually had two test runs and sank both times, killing all the crew members, including Horace Hunley. But both times she was recovered, refitted, refloated. And on the 17th of February, 
1864. She attacked and sank the screw sloop USS Housatonic in Charleston Harbor. She did it with a spar torpedo, and I've shown you what those looked like before. She sank on her return to shore. Uh, not sure why. The theory is that uh, she was too close to Housatonic when the torpedo exploded, um, perhaps 20 feet or so, and, uh, and the, the design uh, distance was 150 feet, with the design distance to be safely clear of the target. So it could have been that she was damaged or flooded uh, as a result. We just really don't know. However, the Hunley was located in 1995. Um, and raised in 2000, and she is uh, she's still, I believe, in preservation, uh, but on display in, in Charleston, South Carolina. So you can actually go see the Hunley slide. There you see a diagram of what she looked like on the interior. 40 feet long with an eight-man crew, and they hand-cranked. That was their propulsion, seven to crank and one to steer. There were ballast tanks on either end and iron weights that could be dumped for emergency surface. So uh, that was the CSS Hundley, the first actual submarine to sink a, uh, an enemy warship. Slide. Well, let's get back to the Western Theater. There is William Tecumseh Sherman, who had risen to prominence uh, initially at Shiloh. He shared a similar attitude with Grant on the need for an annihilation of the Southern armies being the only path to victory. And Grant uh, went off to Virginia as general-in-chief, and that left Sherman as the theater commander charged with taking Atlanta. That is William Tecumseh Sherman. Slide. So, Sherman's Georgia campaign of the summer and fall of 1864. Well, Joseph E. Johnston is the uh, Confederate commanding officer. Remember that Braxton Bragg has uh, uh, been removed and brought back east. Uh, he had a reputation for withdrawing before any serious contact with the opponent. Uh, probably not a good plan if you're uh, fighting a war. But what it did was it resulted in a series of Confederate entrenched defensive positions all along the route uh, from Chattanooga down to Atlanta. So Sherman initiated the campaign in early May of 1864. And, and as you can see from the map there, uh, tried a whole series of flanking moves rather than attacking uh, frontal assault against these uh, defensive positions. And what that did was it forced the Confederacy to, to withdraw to new defenses, uh, really back, 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 back until they actually reached Atlanta. Slide. So now we have the Battle of Atlanta. Uh, Davis, Jefferson Davis, was frustrated with the inability to, to uh, stop Sherman and relieved Johnston of command, brought him back east. Uh, Davis appointed John Bell Hood of Texas as commanding officer. Now, Hood was a lot more aggressive. Uh, he was uh, maybe even overly aggressive. Uh, he counterattacked, hoping to catch Sherman while Sherman was still marching columns, but the attack failed. Uh, Sherman was marching all the way down to Georgia, through Georgia to Atlanta, cutting rail lines as he went, forced Hood to abandon Atlanta on the 1st of September, and set fire to military supplies that he couldn't carry off. Unfortunately, as frequently happens in these cases, it set off a general conflagration, and the burning of Atlanta resulted. That was, uh, for those who've seen Gone with the Wind, uh, a very famous part of that movie, uh, the burning of Atlanta. Slide. It wasn't intentional. Uh, the fire was set to 
excess military stores, uh, but as typically happened in those days with very little to no firefighting capability, uh, it spread and pretty much all of uh, Atlanta was destroyed. Slide. So now with Atlanta in hand, major rail junction, uh, Sherman turned to march to the sea. Uh, the campaign to cut Georgia in half and capture Savannah uh, from 15 November to 21 December, so uh, roughly a five-week campaign. They destroyed military targets, industrial concerns, infrastructure, civilian property, economic activities. It was a 60-mile-wide swath of destruction, literally cut Georgia in half. Uh, it was an innovative campaign in that you were operating deep in the enemy territory without any fixed supply lines. So you lived off the land, foraging. And Georgia, like most of the South, was heavily agricultural and had not been affected really by the war to this point. So the Union Army was, in fact, able to forage and pretty much live off the land. Sherman captured it, uh, Savannah on the 21st of December, and then he turned north to advance into South Carolina in a winter campaign of 1865. This is what forced Charleston to finally surrender once Sherman's army arrived outside Charleston threatening a siege. And at that point, it was time to, time to throw in the towel uh, if you were Charleston. He then advanced into North Carolina and defeated Joseph E. Johnston, who now commanded that last uh, Confederate army there in North Carolina at the Battle of Bentonville. Uh, it was the last Confederate major force to surrender. Sherman occupied Raleigh, uh, which is the capital city of North Carolina, and he was so impressed with the city, that the, the beauty of the city and the architecture, that, that he ordered there will be no looting and there will be uh, no destruction. So a lot of, uh, of old Raleigh is actually still there today. An interesting little story, uh, the state capital of North Carolina, which was built in the earlier part of the 19th century, that like most state capitals, that very Roman or Greek-style Greek revival architecture with a dome and all. Well, the Union Army on one of the top floors there under the dome uh, actually set up a tavern uh, for the, the troops. And you can still see today the marble steps going up and around up towards that where the tavern was. You see the steps are chipped. And that was caused by rolling the beer barrels up and down those marble steps. Slide. Well, Lee is eventually going to be forced out of the defenses of Richmond and Petersburg simply because he had nothing left. Uh, supplies were running out. Starvation was running rampant. Uh, he attempted uh, one last attack on a key fort to force Grant to contract the line. This was on the 25th of March, and it failed. Uh, the Confederate lines were weakened. They were outnumbered 125,000 to 50,000 with uh, 50,000 more Union reinforcements on the way. Uh, Grant finally broke through the line. He ordered a general assault that captured Petersburg on the 3rd of April. But on the night of the 2nd of April, Lee pulled out of his positions and abandoned the defenses around Richmond and Petersburg. Uh, he marched in five separate columns to rendezvous at the Amelia Courthouse, which was headed down towards Lynchburg, Virginia. So the attempt here was to link up with Joseph Johnston's Army of Tennessee, then in North Carolina. This was before the Battle of Bentonville, so Battle of Bentonville actually occurred a few days after Lee surrendered. But the idea was to link up with Johnston's force and then, and then try to take a whack at, um, at either Sherman or Grant. 
And the idea was to uh, link up and establish a defensive position along the Roanoke River in southern Virginia. Slide. So what about the Richmond-Petersburg campaign? By April of 1865, very costly. 42,000 Union troops, 28,000 Confederates. Lee was forced to engage near Appomattox Courthouse on the 9th of uh, April, 1865, after a series of small engagements. Uh, Phil Sheridan's cavalry captured the supplies waiting at Appomattox Station, a rail station. So Lee basically was surrounded. He attempted to break out of the trap. It failed. And by the early April, first week of April, Lee was forced to finally see reality and stated, quote, there is nothing left for me to do but to go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths, end quote. Slide. So Lee, with three aides, rode off to meet Grant at Wilmer McLean's house. Uh, he was dressed in an immaculate uniform. Uh, Grant had not yet arrived, and so he, they sat there in, in the parlor, and there you see the uh, in the slide the restored McLean house at uh, the Battlefield Park at Appomattox. Uh, Grant arrived a bit later with his staff in a mud-spattered uniform and muddy boots from hard riding. He'd been out uh, inspecting the, uh, the troops. Um, only the tarnished shoulder epaulets revealed his, his rank. And the two sat down and discussed their only previous encounter in the Mexican War when they were both very junior officers. Lee then brought the uh, conversation back, and finally they discussed the surrender terms. And here's a, a, an interesting little sidelight. I had heard, and, and maybe you have as well, for years and years and years that General Grant showed up at the surrender ceremony wearing a private's frock coat, or sack coat, it was called, which was essentially their everyday wear, just a plain blue coat, four-button blue coat. And I'd heard that for years and years and years. And then about 10 years ago, uh, when I was in um, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, to do uh, a case study lecture for one of our Naval War College seminars, uh, I went to the Texas Civil War Museum, which if you're ever in Fort Worth, Dallas area, you've got to go see it. It has the most amazing collection of Civil War artifacts uh, that you'll ever want to see in a small museum. Well, one of the things particularly struck me, in a vacuum enclosed glass case, they had the field jacket that General Grant wore that morning at Appomattox. And what happened was uh, Julia Grant, Mrs. Grant, uh, after her husband passed away, they still had that field coat and presented it to the family of one of uh, Grant's uh, staff officers. It stayed in their family for a number of decades and then was eventually donated to the Texas Civil War Museum. And here it was preserved in this glass case. But what was interesting is, yes, it was a blue coat, four buttons, but it was not a private's coat. It was an officer's field jacket. And you could see better cloth. You could tell it was an officer's field jacket because it had the black velvet cuffs that you see on their uniforms. Uh, and from a distance, it would certainly appear to be a uh, private sack coat. So I was so, somewhat intrigued by this that now I'm seeing the actual coat that General Grant wore um, when Lee surrendered. 
at the McLean house there in Appomattox, there it was two feet away from me, and it was not at all what had been mythologically perpetrated over the years. So if you ever get a chance, if you're ever in the Fort Worth area, take a few hours and, uh, and uh, head up to the Texas Civil War Museum. So the surrender terms. Well, uh, Confederate officers, let's go to the next slide. Confederate officers were given uh, parole, which meant that you promised to no longer engage, to no longer fight, or to take up arms against the United States. Uh, each regimental and company commander would sign the parole for his men. All the arms and artillery would be stacked and, and turned over to the Union Army, but officers could keep their sidearms and horses. The men who had them could take their horses and mules home because it was time for spring planting. All were allowed to return to their homes and not be disturbed as long as their paroles were observed. Uh, so basically there were no POWs, no prisoners of war. Uh, Grant provided three days of rations for the Confederates who were basically starving. And these terms were recorded by uh, Colonel Eli S. Parker, who was Grant's adjutant. And if you look at the, um, the uh, picture there, the, the drawing or painting, you see Lee and Grant shaking hands, and you see that officer over at the far left-hand uh, side uh, holding open a, looks like a binder, He's just behind Robert E. Lee. That is Colonel Eli S. Parker, Grant's adjutant. What's interesting about him is he was a Seneca Indian. And as the event was wrapping up, Lee said to Colonel Parker, it is good to have one real American here. Colonel Parker replied, sir, we are all Americans. Slide. So as Lee departed the McLean house, the Union troops started cheering, and Grant ordered them to stop. And he wrote later, quote, the Confederates were now our countrymen, and we did not want to exult over their downfall, end quote. So on the 10th of April, uh, Lee gave his uh, farewell to the troops, and the actual surrender ceremony occurred on the, the 12th of April. Now remember, this was just one Confederate army, uh, the army of uh, Northern Virginia, but very clearly, once that army was gone, uh, it was pretty much all over, and uh, one by one, Confederate forces began to surrender around the, uh, around the country. Slide. So let's go to our map, finally. Lincoln and the Republicans had successfully turned the war into one not only for the preservation of the Union, uh, but the abolition of slavery. Uh, I mentioned that Johnson's Army of Tennessee surrendered in North Carolina. Uh, the last remaining Confederate force, Kirby Smith, over in Texas, soon surrendered. And uh, Jefferson Davis fled south. He was captured in South Georgia, actually, by Union cavalry. Slide. So the Civil War finally settled two issues that had roiled America since the founding uh, of the, of the United States as a result of the War of American Independence. And those two issues were, one, slavery would not exist anywhere in the United States of America. And two, while a federal system with strong state sovereignty, the union of the states would be permanent. I think it's always interesting, if kind of morbidly curious maybe, to know who was the last soldier killed in action. We know who that was. 
That was Private John J. Williams of the 34th Indiana Infantry Regiment, who was killed at the Battle of Palmito Ranch, Texas, on the 13th of May, 1865. Slide. I want to mention uh, one of my favorite uh, personages from the war, and that is uh, Joshua Chamberlain. Colonel Chamberlain of Gettysburg fame, uh, Major General Chamberlain by the end of the war. He was selected to preside over the surrender ceremony, uh, or to lead this, this, the affair, if you will, and he wrote a description of that surrender at Appomattox, and I, I'd like to read that to you. I think it's somewhat profound. Before us in proud humiliation stood the embodiment of manhood, men whom neither toils nor sufferings, nor the fact of death, nor disaster, nor hopelessness could bend from their resolve. Standing before us now, referring to the Confederates, thin, worn, and famished, but erect, and with eyes looking level into ours, waking memories that bound us together as no other bond. Was not such manhood to be welcomed back into a union so tested and assured? Instructions had been given, and when the head of each division column comes opposite our group, our bugle sounds the signal, and instantly our whole line from right to left regiment by regiment in succession gives the soldiers salute from the older arms to the old carry, the marching salute. Gordon at the head of the column, riding with heavy spirit and downcast face, catches the sound of shifting arms, looks up, and taking the meaning, wheels superbly, making with himself and his horse one uplifted figure with profound salutation as he drops the point of his sword to the boot toe, then facing to his own command, gives word for his successive brigades to pass us with the same position of the manual, honor answering honor. On our part, not a sound of trumpet more, nor roll of drum, not a cheer, nor word, nor whisper of vainglorying, nor motion of man standing again at that order, but an awed stillness rather, and breath holding, as if it were the passing of the dead. Joshua Chamberlain, slide. So this concludes our four-part lecture series from the Wart Public Library on the American Civil War. Uh, I appreciate your attention. I hope uh, I've, uh, if nothing else, entertained you for a few hours. And uh, hopefully you will have learned a little bit of the history of our country. So this is Professor Stan Carpenter. Professor Emeritus from the United States Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And I appreciate your attention and wish you every good luck and good day. If you have questions for Dr. Carpenter about the American Civil War, send them to roadieradioonline at gmail.com and we will pass them on. Roadie Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is made possible by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. This is Roadie Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online.